0: What is up? Welcome to the Selby is Godcast here on The Athletic Cleveland. TJ Zuppi, Zach Meisel with you this week. Zach, how are you, my friend?
1: I am amazing. How are you?
0: I am terrific. Happy to be back with you, ready to talk all the news of the the past few days, which there is a bunch. But you have some big news coming up, too, because how much much longer do we have together before you're no longer with us off on your vacation slash honeymoon?
1: Only a couple of days, and... uh... I can't promise that I'll want to come back and come to Cleveland and endure winter and uh, talk to you. So this could be (laughs) it. Thanks
0: for keeping me at the end there. At least you admit that there's some other things that would keep you away from Cleveland
1: besides me. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I've never I'm not good at disconnecting. And like this is going to be a challenge. And my wife is very interested to see if I'm going to be able to put down the phone, not look at Twitter, not be tempted to write an article when Carlos Santana declines a qualifying offer. So this is, this is going to be a good test.
0: So you're going on on that limb and already saying that he is declining. There is no chance of him picking up that $17.4 million qualifying offer. Zero chance.
1: Well, I think that the two sides are probably, if they haven't already been engaged – they will be engaged, and I think they'll – I think – I would guess he'll decline it, but I think he'll decline it with knowledge of what the Indians might be willing to give him in a multi-year deal.
0: So, so I
1: think it, I, I think he's going to decline, but I don't think it's just going to be decline and then, okay, 30 teams come at me and, and let's start from scratch. Well, I like what
0: baseball's done now where they're allowing players – a chance within the 10 day period to sort of get an idea of their market. I think that mm-hmm. was unfair before you're asking guys to make a decision based on a one, one year uh, qualifier. And, and and that's a lot of money that you're potentially turning down, but you're sort of doing it blindly. You, you have some sort of idea what you're going to get and your agent, you know, has through back channels been working things. I'm sure. And you kind of have an idea, but look at, look at Edwin Encarnacion last year. They turned down the, the, the gigantic deal from the Blue Jays going into the the winter thinking uh, we're going to get more than that. We're assured to get more than that. And if you would have paid any attention to the market or, or started to talk to some teams, you would have realized that money probably isn't out there. So the the ability to enable these guys to go out and at least get a sense of what they might be able to earn is beneficial. And I agree with you. I think he will turn it down. but. I don't think that's goodbye. I don't necessarily think that that's the end. And while there's certainly $12 million worth of challenges that are now with <laughs> within the, the grasp of, of the Indians and, and a, a, re, a retaining of Santana thanks to the the picking up of, of Michael Brantley's option, there's, there's obviously a lot of mutual interest on both sides to get this done. I just don't know when we get to that point if they're going to be able to to do what's going to be necessary to to
1: keep him around? Well, I think free agency has changed in the last few years. I kind of think there's three tiers now. And I think that first tier is the absolute no doubt, the guys who are going to get the six-year, $200 million deals, the, the crazy, cranky David Price, Jason Hayward for some reason, those guys who it's going to be a contending team who gives it to you because it's a team that, isn't looking for someone to build around there. I think they're looking for like that one piece to put them over the top. And it's usually a big market team because they have money to do so. Then I think there's a middle tier where I think Brantley kind of falls in this where like maybe he could have gotten like two for 20, something like that on the open market. I think Encarnacion fell into it last year. He probably thought he was going to get something like, four for a hundred five for one twenty, something like that. And ended up having to settle for almost half of that. And then I think the third tier is just kind of, you know, your, your, your bargain bin of whatever you can get kind of like the Austin Jackson, the guys, the Indians usually do a good job finding a guy or two um, every off season for that. But I think it's tough for those guys in the middle tier, just because Santana knows he's not going to get six years, 120 million. And I think there are a lot of teams who are smarter now with allocating resources where if you're not a contender, like you're not going to go above and beyond and and overpay for Carlos Santana or overpay for Michael Brantley or for Jay Bruce. You're kind of, those guys are going to have to fall either to a team like, I don't know, and I'm spitballing here, but like Minnesota who it would be wise because they're on the way up and, and they need a hitter or, like Oakland might settle. Like Remember last year, they Oakland was the team the Indians were bidding against for Encarnacion. It was right. just kind of like, okay, well, if we can get below market value, it would be pretty efficient for us to do so. So it's tough for – I think the Indians have a little bit of an advantage here, obviously because they have the familiarity, but also just because these guys aren't in that upper tier, and when you're in that middle tier, it, it's really – there's a lot of unknown. And the worst – can you imagine being a free agent who – maybe had a chance at some security like Encarnacion last year, or even Santana, who's got 17 and a half million staring at him. And it, it, it's like Christmas or it's New Year's and you're still unsigned and you're not sure what you're gonna do. And odds are you're gonna end up signing for less than you initially had a chance at signing for. Like that can be, that can be really stressful and, and troubling. So it's, it's a really complex, difficult situation for the free agents and, and to a lesser extent for the teams.
0: Well, I mean, as I wrote yesterday at The Athletic, it was a no-brainer to offer him the qualifying offer to start with
1: because you, you come
0: out of this through three scenarios, and all of which you're, you're happy about. One, he says, yes, I'll take the qualifying offer. Fantastic. You bring back a guy that's probably worth over $20 million based on his performance last year back on a deal that's $17.4 million that maybe makes you a little bit uncomfortable with your flexibility, but still it's probably a bargain for the type of production that he brings. The second option being he signs long-term. He, he turns down the qualifying offer, but he remains in Cleveland, which is great. That's fantastic. Any, any scenario that ends with him staying, I think, is beneficial. And the third one is he does sign somewhere else, and it's for over $50 million guaranteed, and you come away with a, a, a draft pick at the end of the first round. All three of those are, are on some level, a very big positive. So to offer him the qualifying offer was a good move and credit. you know maybe we haven't even talked about this enough, but credit to the ownership for allowing at least the possibility that he would sign that and and giving them the opportunity to, to have those three scenarios in front of them because those aren't present if the qualifying offer isn't extended.
1: Yeah. And it's, how do you, so where do you think the Indians stand in terms of, we obviously know they exercise Brantley's option, So, We know how they feel there, but how do you think they ranked or they sorted through the Brantley, Santana, Bruce um, puzzle that everyone's kind of been asking us about? Because it seems as though – I kind of think that they they exercised Brantley's option just because there's no guarantee Santana and Bruce are coming back even if you had the money to sign them. So it's like the one trump card they had where they actually had the power and the authority – to keep Brantley here, and so it's the, it's the one way they know they won't go 0 for 3. Right, mind. and
0: there's a lot of factors here that we just don't know, at least not right now. You know, We don't know if ownership has okayed uh, the, the payroll increasing again next year, which, based on the way that they've handled the past few years and spending some extra money to bring in Jay Bruce in the middle of the year, it's not exactly – out of the realm of possibility to see payroll expand a little bit more. I don't know if it can expand to the, to, to the capability of bringing back Santana or re-signing Bruce, but I, I don't think it's crazy to believe that there's going to be more flexibility there. And I agree with you. You're taking a, a known commodity and that you have the say with Brantley to bring him back. Now, I still think that's a difficult move to make and I would love to be able to allocate that $12 million in another Would you place. have done it? I probably would not have, just because I would like to see if that $12 million could make a difference. With, what if with he didn't Santana have ankle surgery? It would make a big deal. I mean, that would be a big a big difference for me. Yeah. The fact that he has to go through an entire offseason rehabbing, and you hope that he can be there in spring training, ready to go, right out of the gate, but the odds of that aren't necessarily great, and you know, I wouldn't put a ton of money on that based on his recent history, and, and as we saw last year with Jason Kipnis, you miss some time early. You're trying to play catch-up the whole rest of the year, and maybe that makes less of a difference for Brantley because he is such a talented hitter, and he is such that, that, that simple swing that they always talk about. And Last year, he was able to make an all-star team in the first half, and he didn't even play pretty much all of last year. So so maybe it's easier for him than others, but I, there's just so many different variables here that I didn't feel comfortable with. The one thing I can say in looking at it is if... This is a huge if. I mean, this is the biggest if that you're going to play with this game. If he is healthy, $12 million is a bargain for mm-hmm. for his services based on what he's been in the past. I just don't know that I feel strongly enough that he's going to be that same guy or that he's going to be capable of staying on the field long enough to make that $12 million stand up.
1: So the thing that's interesting to me in all of this is that Bruce is the one guy where they have no leverage over. Um, They have, you know, they could offer the, they offered the qualifying offer to Santana. So now the ball's at his court. Um, But with Bruce, he's the one guy who's just, well, you hope that you just re-sign him in free agency, but the only thing tying him to Cleveland is, is the fact that he spent a couple of months here. So, What's interesting to me is you look at defensively. I, I think there are so many questions, and we asked, and of course we didn't get anything of a concise, clear answer on it, but can Brantley really play left field anymore? Should he play left field? Should he play first base? Well, he won't play first base if Santana comes back, so then you're basically saying, okay, Brantley will play left field. Well, Bruce is the one guy who like makes sense defensively. Because he actually, and I know he hasn't been a great outfielder in his career. He was really good defensively last year. And whether he is or not, you put him in right field, and you have a right fielder. And you can decide what to do with Chisholm Hall. You can non-tender him if you want. You can let him play left field. But like, there are so many questions about Brantley, and Santana's obviously a first baseman. But what about Kipnis? I mean, there, everyone else has questions. Bruce is the one guy who it just seemed like, okay, if they re-sign him, you put him in right field, and there are no questions. But now it's like, how do you sort out where Kipnis plays, where Brantley plays? How do you do that if Santana comes back? There's just, it leads to such a ripple effect. And Bruce is the one guy who, in my mind, maybe would have made the most sense of all of the three just because it's that is answered for you. Right. And I agree with you that it makes it easier
0: to slide him in than anybody given the, the kind of puzzle that you have. The best offensive threat that I feel most strongly about actually staying on the field is is Santana. Santana, you know, you can look at the power numbers, you can look at the home runs, but in today's environment, let's be honest, guys that don't get on base a ton and generally just hit for power and that's all, have value but don't have the same value they once did. I'll take a guy that gets on base 36, 37, 38 percent of the time and maybe hits for a little less power, but just because of that on-base ability and drawing walks and being a switch hitter, you can put that in the middle of your lineup and feel great about it. That's why I ranked Santana ahead of Bruce, despite mm-hmm. the fact that you can look at the, the home runs and say, well, Bruce is the more consistent power guy and you know, about the same age, same s- stage of their career. I, I, going into this offseason, I, I, I would have wanted to put most of my resources toward keeping Santana.
1: They didn't sure. do that. And I agree.
0: And, and they didn't do that. And, and it's, it's not to say that they can't find a way to get it done. And I think they will try to find a way to get it done. It's just looking less and less likely, I guess, that, that it's going to happen. Though I, I don't know if I can say that for sure. We, we just don't know based on interactions, we can have a guess, but we just don't know the motivation of Santana. You know, he said many times how much he wants to stay. And after game five, he was already talking about next year and making it to the world series. And, 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 and that's all great. But that was also five minutes after the seasons ended, you know, how much, how important is it just getting the financial stability for his family? And, and and just feeling secure there, you know. Well, well, the top dollars speak more than just the loyalty to the team. He has a right to, to make that decision. So I just because there are so many unknowns right now, it's really tough to to, to know the answer to
1: that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I would have ranked Santana at the top of the three. I'm just saying, like, I think committing twelve dollars to a twelve twelve dollars that would have been a bargain. Twelve million dollars. <laughs> to a player who, and I think, like, I'm not even sure that I would have declined the option with Brantley, but, like, I think when you look at how this might end up playing out, it seems kind of silly to commit $12 million to not only a player who you aren't sure will be ready for opening day, but a player who, where the heck do you play him if Santana does come back? Because then you have you have an extra body there with, with Kipnis and Brantley, and those two are going to combine to make, what, $25 million? So it seems really inefficient and unlike this organization. And that's why I just thought, like, Bruce was, it seemed like he'd be easy just to slot him in there. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't have, he wouldn't connect to what, whatever you do with Kipnis or Santana or any of that. So I don't know. They've got, this puzzle is, has not gotten any less complicated <laughs> um, as we're a month into the offseason. And that
0: could all just be thrown in its head if he just accepts the qualifying offer. Sure, guys, I'm back for yeah. one more year. <laughs> um, before we uh, move on to some of our Twitter questions of the week, what, what did you want to discuss? What was on your brain this
1: week as you were planning this podcast? So I had a question. And the city of Cleveland is weird. I'm so interested in the psyche of Cleveland sports fans, and I've written a lot about it in the past. And there's so much more to tackle. And I know it's a Browns town. It's a football town first and foremost. And it's evident by the fact that it's all you hear on the radio. It's all you see tens of thousands of fans flock to the lake shore every Sunday, even though the team is 1-23 is in 23 in its last 24 games. We get that. It's, it's, if the Browns were ever good, the Cavs and the Indians would essentially become obsolete. And... So I I wrote a story last week about where I I asked fans, I said, why do you still go to Browns games? Like what is in it for you to sit through that for a few hours to, to drive downtown, to pay for tickets, pay for parking. And the replies were great. And a lot of people said, I don't, you know, it's not worth it. Um, And then there, I got a bunch of emails from people who were like, you know, it's, it's been in the family for 30 years and it's tradition and, there are others who said, I go to the Muni lot and drink, and then I leave after the first quarter. So, all over the place, but there is a, a change in attitude, I think. And I think fans finally, it's only been 18 years since they've been back. I think fans are finally fed up and wanting some sort of change and are willing to at last, like, put their money where their mouth is. And, and attendance has decreased. I think just interest in the team, I think apathy is set in for a lot of people, but it's not, it's not like that's a hundred percent of the fan base. It's not like the Browns have been abandoned here. And I think back to, it's hard to do this with the Cavs just because they've had, you know, they had LeBron in 2003 and even those four years where he was gone, they still had decent attendance and and people still cared a little bit just because they had the number one pick and there was the thought of LeBron coming back and. So So the one comparison here is to the Indians, and I know it's not a fair comparison because whatever it is about this town it's it's football first, and sometimes baseball takes a, a back seat. But would it ever get to a point where we saw in two th- – you know once once the nineties heydays went away and Dolan bought the team and, and they rebuilt and rebuilt, would it ever get to that point where you know you only have 10,000, 20,000 fans in the stands at first energy or where they're just people didn't want to talk about Browns or you have Browns players saying, well, it would be nice if we had more energy in the stadium and we could feed off of that. Just would it ever get to that point? I mean, we saw it as recently as, as 2012 when the Indians disappointed and lost 94 games and changed their manager and we didn't even recognize half the guys on the roster. I'm just wondering if, if it would ever, and I'm not saying I want to, I'm not pinning Indians fans against Browns fans. I know for some reason it's like you're not allowed to be a fan of all three teams in this, in this city. It's weird. But um, would it ever get to that point where fans are apathetic enough where they just turn their back on the team and, and kind of it becomes just like a novelty where you take your kids just because it's something to do instead of wanting the Browns to win and actually caring?
0: It's so tough because, because of the nature of the sport. And that's the first thing that's going to pop out for anybody. You play 16 times in a regular season, eight times at home. So it's always going to be tough to compare that against 81 home games. So you're always operating under that umbrella. I Honestly, Zach, I think we're not there yet. But I think considering what this this fan base has been in the past, the, the loyalty that they've had to an organization that deserves really none of it over the years. To, to go from what it was five, six, seven, ten years ago to what it is now, I think is almost comparable to where we were at with the Indians. Now, I, I get your point about talk shows and television, and so the Browns are always leading and they're always first. And part of that is because the interest is there. There's no doubt. But shout out to Milzy. The other side of that, I, I think that's almost out of habit. There's a lot of people that have done, have been in this town for so long, people in the media, people that, that do talk shows, sports talk radio, that have gotten into the habit of constantly talking Browns. And it's an easy thing to do because – you've kind of trained yourself to, to always want to talk Browns. And now that the Browns don't really deserve to be talked about as much as they once did, and you have the Cavs, who right now are a train wreck, but still you got LeBron James, and the Indians who have been to the playoffs for back-to-back years and advanced deep two years ago, and there's no reason to believe they can't try to do that again next year and are facing a huge offseason. I, I, just, I think the... I think people have gotten out of the habit of knowing how to talk about the other sports in the same way that they talk about the Browns. To be able to come up with intriguing things that people want to talk and and discuss and, and question with other sports the way that they have the Browns. And I think that plays a huge part of it. The the perception is partially shaped by television and radio and, and it's it might not be the entire picture, but it's part of it. And if you look at like, even if you look at top 40 radio, they essentially determine what the popular songs are going to be. If they set, if if Taylor Swift put out a song and they put it on the radio, people are going to think it's great. If for some reason, whatever reason that might be, they think Taylor Swift is bad and they should take that off the radio, they will soon have everyone believing that Taylor Swift is not that great of an artist. So... I think there's an element of that with with the Browns where you know the perception is every day you turn on the radio you turn on the television they're at the forefront of every conversation they're talked about endlessly again and again and again you're pounding into people's heads that they're still important where they 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 aren't as important and if we just took a little bit extra time to talk about some of the the things in the other sports that are as compelling, but maybe just take a little bit extra brain power to figure out what that compelling topic is, I think you'll find that the perception can change over time. But as far as the the fans going down, just to look at that stadium the way that it is now, to see how few fans are there, and knowing that it's, all, I mean, it's a once-a-week thing that takes place eight times a year down at the stadium. And if you don't have people going, in that environment, in that setup, where the NFL over the past few years it felt like they were just printing money and you can't succeed doing it that way, I think that speaks just as, many, just as much to what you were talking about with the Indians in the past com- compared to what we saw with the Browns and their interest in the fans and how invested they were over the past few years. I think we're approaching that point. Not quite there yet, but just kind of... Weighing all the factors in and realizing you can't look at it apples to apples, you have to compare things across different sports. I really think that we're we're pretty close to that happening.
1: yeah it, the difference in sports is a good point It's interesting to me because if you like if you were a baseball team that had you were starting a rebuild, and let, let's think of this in 2017 terms and not you know two thousand two, two thousand three because I think it was really tough for fans to swallow that the nineties Indians days were over and they were going to go young and they were going to rebuild and trade away stars and not resign guys. That was tough. I completely understand that. And I, I even understand fans. You know, I think it's look, CC Sabathia was walking. They, they should have traded him. They did. And it ended up working out pretty well. Michael Brantley's here. And now we're still talking about him 10 years later. Um, even though they got lucky because he was the player to be named in that deal, and Cliff Lee, he was going to walk in a year and a half. Yeah, you you probably didn't get what you would have liked to get for him, but you still traded whatever. But the fact that there are still fans who that's like their reason for not supporting the Indians ten years later later is ridiculous. But, but do
0: you really think those fans exist? Because I I think we talk about them.
1: I think they as did like until fictitious last creatures. Year. I, I don't. Heard I'm from not. Them.
0: Yeah, but those. I feel like those are probably the. It's the, the two or three guys that are out there yelling the loudest. So you, you you hear them and you recognize them, but I don't think that represents a large part of the fan base
1: anymore. Well, they have a lot of time on their hands to send nasty emails. So. <laughs> no, but but if you – the thing that's different about the NFL is, you know, the Browns, if they hit next year's draft and they find a quarterback, they could win six, seven games next year and then be a playoff team the year after that. like. It is such a quick turnaround where baseball is such a slow build, and it took the Astros. I mean, I know the the story was written in 2014, but it was really. I mean, they tore that thing down before then. It took it took five or six years for them to to tear it down and build it back up. So, I think I think it is different just because with the Browns, it's like well, if they find a quarterback, that's it, and then it's it's only you know everything's looking up from there so it's tough but I, but i do it it's weird to me that like fans get so frustrated when the browns lose and it's like why stop caring so much well, what do you expect at this point they're zero eight it's like you should want them to lose every week so you get that first pick because the niners can't win either so i i it boggles my mind and it's like are these the same people who are Filling progressive field, who are filling Quicken Loans Arena because it's it's just it's different, and I think people have a different mindset with football, and I I kind of think that's why people can't let go and can't can't not care about the Browns.
0: Oh, I, I also think it's just because it it is something you've done forever. Maybe you did do it with your dad or your mom or your family or grandpa, whoever, and, and so that's part of it. And I and I also think that just because there is less of it, there's a sense every week that. You know, it doesn't last very long. The season is over before you know it. So there's, there are limited opportunities for you to go with your friends and go down to tailgates. If you if you blow off one of those weeks just because you're frustrated with the team, I, I, I imagine for a lot of people it probably feels like you're punishing yourself more than than anything because now you've given up a chance that you had to just go down and blow off some steam, get drunk, hang out with your friends, whatever. So it's it's almost like you're you probably feel like you're missing something if you don't. If you don't tune in every week, if you don't go down every week, and and I, I still feel that to a certain extent. Now, I may have watched the the equivalent of maybe a half of Browns football this year total, with all the games that I've tuned into. But there's still something about like the Sunday morning you get up and you go, oh yeah, well it's almost one o'clock. The Browns are about ready to start here, and it, it has now gotten to this point where now I can resist the urge and. I don't care. Let's watch Puppy Dog Pals. Let's do that instead of watching the Browns on Sundays. But there's just an element, too, of this, Zach, where it's like you feel like just because it is so limited, you feel like you're missing something. Whereas if with the Indians, because they play every single day, ah, if I don't tune in tonight, I'll get them tomorrow. Or if I don't go down today, I'll go next mm-hmm. month. And I think that's why it's also a little bit more difficult.
1: Yeah, I guess I just wish, and I know Andre Knott talks about this all the time, time and he would love to, like, Completely overhaul Cleveland sports media, but we should be able to talk about all three teams intelligently and it doesn't have to be even or equal. I mean, we should be talking about the Browns right now more than we talk about the Indians or the Cavs, um, especially because the Indians and Cavs don't flub a terrible trade five minutes before the trade deadline a day after the quarterback they were previously interested is traded for a much lower price than what was previously reported. The Browns would have had to pay. Like, what teams can you say that sentence about? It's unbelievable. But, but I just, you know, I, I kind of wish there was more balance and it was, like, it almost feels like it's not acceptable. Like, I know you and I kind of felt like, okay, we're going to write these Indian stories here in late October as teams that aren't the Indians are still playing and fans have completely shifted to the NFL um, and probably don't want to read this cause they're still really salty about the Indians exit, but obviously it's our job and, but it's still, it's like, it's kind of awkward. And sometimes it's, you know, you could talk Browns 12 months out of the year. How many
0: times not here recently, but over the past few years, did you get the nobody cares, dude, the Browns are right. on in response to something you tweeted about a, uh, an Indians game happening in early September, say 2014 or something like that, where it's like, you know, dude, I still have to go over here and, and do my job. I still have to tell you what's happening. You get to consume whatever you want to consume, but I still am getting paid to tell you what's happening down
1: here. Right. And, and I will say like, the thing I love about working for the athletic is, you know, we, we're all about quality and not necessarily about quantity. And so it's, you know, this is the time to sink our teeth into, those in-depth pieces that stuff that you're taking time researching and crafting. And, and yeah, I mean, we'll still write about what's happening and the off season stuff and everything we hear, but you know, and other employers, no names, please. You know, you're required to write multiple things every day of the off season. And it's like, okay, well, on November 3rd when like the Browns are screwing up a trade for a quarterback, I don't think anybody wants to write, Whatever the hell I can come up with that's gonna be five hundred words and I can post to the website and that I'm really reaching for. Like it it's it could be really difficult. So Ten yeah, times it,
0: Jose Ramirez looks like an MVP this year.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So like no one wants to read that. You'll
0: never believe number seven.
1: <laughs> but um so yeah, you, you kinda wanna pick your spots and and because yeah, I, I completely get it. I understand, you know, if someone says I don't think we're going to get people now saying, hey, shut up. The Browns are on. No one cares about Corey Kluber winning the Cy Young. But, you know, there there is a time and a place in the offseason. You kind of have to be methodical.
0: Uh, time and a place is also the offseason when you start to look at different things you might adjust in the season ahead. Because it's really difficult to, like, I don't know, for instance, change your second baseman into a center fielder. <laughs> or, you know, just change a guy's complete position or what they're doing in the middle of a season, let alone a pennant race. Uh, so the off-season usually when those sorts of things happening happen. And I, you know, I wrote last week about my thoughts on, on Danny Salazar and, and what they can do to kind of maximize him. Can uh, I interrupt you really quick? Sure. Uh,
1: <laughs> you know what I'm about to say, don't you? I, I, have, a strong, I have a strong suspicion. Uh, the Scranton Paper Company HBD team would like to welcome Michael Livesay, their new ace starting pitcher, who signed a five-year, $74 million deal. Um, now, hold on. Is That's just below, such...
0: That is below what experts said that they thought he would
1: get this offseason. How did Scranton manage to pull that off? Five for 110 initially was not enough money. That's the max offer. Let me say this. There's a pitcher named J.O. Lee whose ratings are much worse who got the exact same contract? What the exact same
0: contract for a As pitcher in, that uh, that is 27 years old that looks
1: like Clayton Kershaw? Yeah, five, he J O Lee got five for. Oh, math is not five for seventy. It looks like Livesay got five for seventy-four. So that's interesting that you say Livesay. I looked at it and I thought
0: Livisay. So Livisay?
1: We're gonna call him Livy. Uh, be, huh, that hopefully that'll sense. get Bill Livingston to come to the park and write about him
0: <laughs> oh you know that guy he just he's out there pitching
1: um, <laughs> anyway
0: well it's impressive we went a couple of weeks without an HBD reference on the
1: podcast so very exciting I'm gonna half pay attention to the rest of this but, <laughs> all right. right go ahead
0: so are you actually gonna be able to comment on my thoughts on what they can do with Danny Salazar because I you know we heard it at the end how many times did they say consistency in that year-end press conference about Danny Salazar like seven or eight times Tito said, "Oh, he's got to get consistent. That's a big thing in this game." And then, Mike is this something off... you can buy at a store? Like, what? We always hear that, but it's not. Hey, I Danny, mean, go it... go into the go into this winter and start to work on your consistency. If you could just figure that out, that would be great. Um, you know, it's something that they say, and it's something that's true. I mean, every pitcher, every player is looking for consistency. But you're right; it's not something that, as Manny Actis said, you can go to a store and buy that's in a can. So. My thought is, you know, what, what can you do with him to try to maximize him? Because ultimately you'd love him to pitch 170, 180, 190, 200 innings. But you know, over the past few years, it makes it tough to know whether or not he's, he's really just ever going to be capable of doing that. And we look at how important bullpens are. We look at what happened in the postseason. You see the Astros using starters to close out games, and your rolls were out the window. And, 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 and that part of that was just because they had to because no one was really pitching well. But we've seen the Indians do it and try to maximize multi-inning guys as weapons. And I look at Salazar, I look at a guy like Chris Davinsky, and I say, why can't Salazar do something like that? And if he's only going to give you 100 innings, why not find a way to, instead of, of it being over 25 starts or 20 starts or whatever it is, Why not try to find a way to get Danny Salazar into 40 to 50 games and try to get him to throw 100 innings and let those be the innings in the, whether it's the middle of the game or if you can be aggressive with a starter, like say Josh Tomlin, he's two times through the lineup, bring in Danny Salazar, or, you know, you don't have any options left with Ryan Merritt. Why not let Ryan Merritt start a game, have him go three innings and then bring Danny Salazar out of the bullpen to make it look like he's throwing 120 miles per hour after, Merritt was just tossing it up there at 83 miles per hour. I, I think if you're not going to be able to, to ever get a starter's workload out of Danny Salazar, why not find a way to, to make him into that multi-inning weapon to help cover some of the outs that you
1: might be losing with Brian Shaw this off season? I thought we were going to talk about Kipnis. <laughs> you started this off by saying you can't move your second baseman right. to center field. And I, I just, before I get to Salazar, I want to say this, Chris Antonetti, Look, he's not going to reveal their plans. I know part of it depends on if Santana comes back, if Bruce comes back, et cetera, et cetera. But he made it sound like they didn't talk to Kipnis about what position he might play next year. So is Kipnis like he's going to come to spring training and be like, "All right, so like, do I grab my infielder's glove? Do I grab an outfielder's glove? Am I the DH? Like, what? <laughs> do I grab Josh Tomlin's glove?" Yeah, I thought that was a little bizarre. And they may have told him something, but I know a lot is dependent on other things. So I, that's, that's such a weird situation. Yeah. Salazar. Here's what I think. Josh Tomlin is going to be in the opening day rotation. I don't think they want him in the bullpen. He, they, they re-signed him. I don't think he, I think he's out of options. So he'll be in the rotation. And, and that would mean it's Salazar or Clevenger for that last spot. And I could see them going either way. I could see them going Clevenger in that role because they moved him to that role where he could quote-unquote be a weapon even though they didn't use him as a weapon and it was like the strangest playoff planning we've ever seen and and Clevenger did not adapt well to that uh, role as Paul Hoynes and Terry Francona argued about in our uh, postseason exit interviews. But... um, I think it makes sense for Salazar. I think the one hang-up is you talk about how they've stressed consistency and they've stressed routines, and they want him to just get on a regimen and a program, mm-hmm. like follow Kluber's model. Well, if he's going to be that Chris Davinsky type and he's going to go to the bullpen and throw two innings every few days, it's hard to establish a routine, and it's tough to do. And And so maybe he doesn't quite fit that mold. He'd be perfect at it. He would be – if you only wanted a hundred innings from him and he could pitch in fifty fifty five games, I think he could do really well as long as he was fine with it, and he grew accustomed to never knowing exactly when he's going to pitch
0: here's here's two thoughts I have on it one, with the the shoulder forearm, elbow, all these things that he's battled physically mentally what you know whatever the case may be i I don't know how him throwing in more games would impact that. I would guess that less mm-hmm. innings would be a good thing. So that, that, is, that to right now is an unknown. But there isn't another element to this where you're talking about consistency and they haven't been able to ever find a routine that works for him. Maybe the reason is just because he's, he is incapable of adapting to a starter's routine. He, maybe he just is the type of person that needs the adrenaline of, of maybe pitching every single day. Uh, You have to sit down in the bullpen, and on any given day, unless you just threw three innings the day before, you might be in that game. Could that be a situation that actually benefits him? That he has no choice but to remain prepared and go out and throw like he's going to pitch every day, or else he's going to get exposed for not going about going about it the same way that the other relievers are. I I wonder if that could be beneficial and I would be really interested to see if it would be so much so that I would absolutely consider doing it. You know, so the health part of this is a huge thing. Ultimately you'd love him to throw 170 innings, but if you're if that's being taken off the table just because he can't physically stay healthy enough to do it, man, I would love the idea of him being able to to not just fill the Davinsky role, but actually to to become even more of a throwback and in, and increase the the workload so it's we're not talking about 80 to 90 innings that you're finding a way to get him into 100 to 110 innings.
1: Yeah, I, he's such a an enigma. Like I never know I never he, he's very underrated in post-game interviews. I never know what he's going to say. Sometimes, I mean, there've been times in the past where he blamed his poor outing on he was it was too hot and he was like sweating too much. I remember in Houston. Um, there've been other times where just like, he was afraid that he was going to get hurt. And there have been times where he just didn't have it. And it's like, I I just have no idea how he would adapt to a new role, to the uncertainty of, of when he'll pitch. I don't know. I I think it would be fascinating. I think he could be a, a really effective pitcher in that role if he stayed healthy and, his mind was right, and and the bullpen is going to need it. They're mm-hmm. going to lose Brian Shaw. This is the last year for for Andrew Miller and for for Cody Allen, unless they sign those guys to extensions. So they have to figure something out, and, and maybe maybe this is what they do.
0: Yeah, I don't even think it would be him just being good in that role. I I think he's got the capability to be to become one of the game's best at doing something like that. Now, maybe there's just not a lot of guys that are in that mold right now, but for as much as the Indians kind of pride themselves on being ahead of the curve and we're seeing this, this line of racing between starters and relievers, certainly in the postseason, but if you have more pitchers that are willing to, to do this and not get over this as being viewed as a demotion, because it, it, if you use the guys the right way, it is not a demotion. Those, right. one, those 100 innings, you could take those from being, you know, 50 really stressful innings and maybe 25 in there mixed in aren't, aren't that high leverage. You could take all those innings and make them essentially higher leverage and make those innings more valuable and it not be because, well, you, you stunk as a starter or you just couldn't get consistent. This is now your, this is now your role. This is now what you do. And to make that his, I would be interested to see if he could, if he could embrace that. And also, uh, In the past, in the postseason, I remember last year, him talking about warming up in the bullpen and how much he actually enjoyed that atmosphere, that pressure-packed, you know, you got to get ready and you got to go now and then you're in the game. I I would love to see how that would impact his mentality, too.
1: Yeah, I don't... This, for a team that, like, I think a year ago we said, okay, they made Game 7 of the World Series, they fell short, still impressive, look at this roster intact. Then they add Encarnacion and Boone Logan. It's like, they have no holes. I I thought they would win the division by 20 games. I think they won it by 17. Um, And it's like, this is the window is open for years and years and it still is, but boy, do they have some pressing issues and some decisions to make that could determine whether the window is open for say two years or for five or six years. And I think one of them is what they do with Salazar. I think, They've got to figure out the bullpen long-term just because because of Miller and Allen. And then obviously offensively with, with what happens with Santana, do they bring Bruce back? Is Brantley, if he, even if he plays well, then he might go off and sign somewhere else and then you've still got to replace him. So they have a lot of questions here. And I think the Salazar one is, is an interesting one. I think that's going to be something to watch. I'll say this last year i I think in spring training um what did we ask about we asked about encarnacion adapting and getting past game seven and just being excited for the season there wasn't really much to talk about i think we were pretty bored in in goodyear this year there is so much to discuss and so many moving parts and at least it'll keep things interesting in february and Maybe we can talk about the Indians and all of their different dynamics instead of six months on the NFL draft.
0: Oh, you know the answer to that before we even get to it. All right, uh, yeah. for some actual answers that maybe we can give, let's throw open the uh, the Twitter mentions and see what people have for us this week. Uh, before we dive into some of the questions, I know uh, Rinnie, one of our followers, asked about Michael Brantley, and I think we, t- <laughs> we we dove into that enough that we don't need to rehash all of that. But hopefully that answers some of your questions. Uh, Scott Harvey wants to know: Zach, Game Seven of the World Series, the bullpen has been emptied. You now have to put a position player on the mound. Which Indians player are you selecting?
1: Well, Michael Martinez is, was on the roster. He was in the organization this year. Yeah. So he has. He's tied for the lowest ERA in MLB history among pitchers. So I would. He'd probably be my top choice. Although we know how he has done in with the game on the line in game 7 of the world series so maybe that wouldn't oh, be good you know chris chris jimenez is a popular answer i'm sure but he's more of a durability guy who can log a lot of innings can i can i take it back a few years and go david murphy yeah although didn't he give he up was, a grand slam to he did but he chris was Bryant? At the, yeah at the time he was working on a knuckleball and he's lefty so i want to see where that knuckleball's at that, that can be pretty effective. And
0: people wanted Ryan Merritt to face the Cubs in the World Series. Look, you had your preview. What would have happened?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> With David Murphy thrown. Um, Ryan Rayburn, of course, former Indians position player on the mound. Of sure. course, Andy Marte, rest in peace, did a tremendous job of striking out Nick Swisher. Uh, if we're going guys that are at least somewhat recent or guys that are on the team or maybe on the team, how about Carlos Santana? We've seen him turn and throw to second base. How many of those throws are are strong and on the money? he has got that former catcher's arm, right? So I think that strong, accurate arm would be would be popular on the mound.
1: And then Do you think only... Coco Crisp could get it to home plate?
0: <laughs> <laughs> With Jason Kipnis, when they told him, "Hey, man, doesn't matter how many bounces it takes, just get it into the infield." Um, <laughs> uh, the only other thought that I had was, you know, Michael Brantley has has that. It's not uh, a gun, but it's always that it's got good carrying. It always makes it to its mark from left field. So maybe, maybe Michael Brantley on the mound.
1: If you're paying him $12 million,
0: you, you might as well get <laughs> something out of him. Uh, Tim on Twitter tweets at TJ Zuppi and at Zach Meisel wants to know our opinion on the best seat in progressive field to watch a game. The best exact seat. <laughs>
1: um. Section one fifty four, row C, seat six. I don't. uh You know, we get a we get a nice view from the press box. I think it's so different. You know, I don't know about you, TJ. When I was in high school, my buddies and I would buy the cheap seats, and we'd you know have the upper deck seats. And and if it was a a popular game, you'd have to stay in your seats, and we'd be. In the upper deck, and and everyone would look like ants, as Ollie Williams would say. Um, but then the games where there were only 8,000 of us in the stands, we'd move down, and it's, it's completely different. It's like if you're sitting in the lower level in the first 20 rows at an NBA game, it's so different than oh. if you're sitting in, in the upper deck. And so I, I think, you know, anywhere – really anywhere in, like, the lower bowl – on the infield is an incredible view. I like,
0: I I think the upper deck behind home plate is underrated. It is a tough view if you like being close to the field, but you get a nice survey of everything. Uh, The right field mezzanine, while they chopped off some of those seats is actually a better view than I think people give it credit for. But my favorite, yes, my favorite seat in the ballpark though has to be the seats they put in in center field in front of the bullpen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember when they were showing off some of those renovations and they took us out to center field and we just stood right where those seats are the view there you just because of how they're propped up and there's there isn't that huge lip in front of you like some of the seats in right field you feel like you're sitting almost on the field um, and you get a perfect view from center field so while there are very few of them I will say those seats in center field just in front of the bullpen are tremendous.
1: And it's a good spot to heckle. It is. It's tremendous. Uh,
0: Final one. This is right up your alley, Zach. Derek wants to know top five media dining
1: spreads in the American League. Go. Oh. So Kansas City is number one. That's not a question. Um, They'll have their normal spread, which has a lot of options. And then you could also – they'll make whatever you want. You want chicken fingers, you want a burger, they'll do it. Then the desserts are what separate it. They have cookies the size of your face and they're fresh baked right out of the oven, chocolate chip, uh, sugar, peanut butter, whatever. And then they usually have pie or cake or cheesecake or brownies. And then they always have legitimate ice cream with toppings, cones, cups. They have peanuts. They have. I mean, it's, it, incredible. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Kansas City's the best.
0: If, if we work there every day, I mean. Tough. <laughs> I I might be dead in a few years. Um, how about the hot pretzels that they just have ready to go, and the right. the nacho cheese? Just all you have to do is just. Here, you want some? Here, all right. Just uh, pump it out of the machine here. Oh,
1: that's well. And that's the worst part incredible. about that city and that trip is that we're we're there a couple times a year, and so I like to go hit up Casey barbecue places. And it's not like you're going and you're just having, like, a rib or two or, like, a a piece of brisket. Like, you're eating a big meal for lunch, and it's great. But then you get to the press box a few hours later, and it's like, well, I can't turn down this bread and these yeah. desserts. So, yeah, you spend three days there, and, and you put on, like, the freshman 15.
0: <laughs> yeah, times 20. Uh, New York, of course, is fantastic.
1: Yeah, I'd uh, put them number two.
0: And, and they were top-notch in our two days there at during the American league division series. And I think I told this story on the podcast before, but still Paul Hoynes thinking that the, the meal was free me informed him already having his plate at his seat in the press box, me informing Paul that no, you actually had to pay for that. That was actually like $12 him still having a plate of food. His only thought was to get rid of the evidence immediately. He stood up and (laughs) threw his half plate of food in the garbage and then went in to, to go in and pay. And I was like, man, if you're already going in to pay, why not just finish the food that was already in front of you? It was like a guy that got caught cheating, so he just immediately threw his phone in the garbage.
1: Ah, I don't think that's going <laughs> to fix things. <laughs> uh, Minnesota, I would put third. They're pretty solid, and their breakfast is really good. Um, and I would, I would say – boy, it's tough after that. I'm Seattle is pretty good. Seattle similar to Minnesota. Um, this is a novel concept, but Seattle always has a big fruit salad out. You can have ah. fruit, something healthy. Um, so if anyone in Cleveland Press Dining is listening, hint, hint. Um, and after that, it's tough. I know the White Sox are last. That is the worst, absolute Oof. worst. I will never step foot in their press dining room again. And also the Soup Nazi is the guy who serves you. So it's, it's just a terrible experience. Um, which is fitting for that ballpark and that team. Yeah, so at least you're not Uh, eating minerals at the Mineral Museum. I don't know. I almost want to pick Boston as number five. I've heard – I've only been going there for a few years. I've heard it used to be a lot better, but they had this year on our one trip there, the cookies. They had just fresh-out-of-the-oven chocolate chip cookies, and they were the best cookies I'd ever had. And that goes a long way with me. So I, maybe them. Some people like Detroit. I think it's overrated.
0: At least in Detroit, you can, you can tell them if you want something different, and they'll make it for you, too. It's not great, but at least they're willing to do but that. they just
1: pick the prices out of their ass.
0: <laughs> so I, I'm usually one for having a Red Bull at some point during the day, and maybe even two. Uh, and they this is awesome that they actually have Red Bulls there that you can go buy. I have gone to Detroit up there, picked a Red Bull out of the thing, set it down on the counter, and the the woman says uh, that'll be four dollars. And go, okay, then I've gone up there, picked a Red Bull out, and also picked uh, a candy bar out, set it down, put the two items next to each other, and she said that'll be four dollars. <laughs> and then <laughs> I've also grabbed a Red Bull, and I also got something else out. I can't remember what it was, and she said that'll be two fifty. So I don't understand <laughs> how they decide. It is basically just go up there and whatever she thinks, the first number that comes to the person that is running the register's head,
1: that's what you will pay for that meal. Yeah, and I am a big sweet tooth, big desserts guy. They do one scoop of ice cream some nights and some nights nothing. And that, that's, <laughs> that's unacceptable.
0: That's why you have to go downstairs and go get yourself some tiger tracks while you're at
1: the, tracks, yes. While you're at the ballpark. All right, so if anybody has questions in the
0: future and wants to shoot us some questions for the podcast, you can send them to at TJ at Zach Meisel, Or you can email us if you have a little bit lengthy something else you want to share. That's TJzoopy at the athletic.com. And what is your email, Zach? ZMisel at theathletic.com. M-E-I-S-E-L uh, it's simple enough. And we appreciate everybody listening this week, the Selby is Godcast. Uh, before we do wrap things up, I have to share that I've made things a little bit easier. Well, I think the next few weeks will actually be painful for people to find us. In the long run, I've hopefully done something that will make it easier for people to find us on iTunes or to find our RSS feed. So if you actually search Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, You can find us there with our own feed instead of being part of the Athletic Cleveland feed. So if you just want us, if that's all you want, and who would want anything more? Why would you need anything more, Zach? If all you want is us, search Selby as Godcast in Apple Podcasts, and we'll tweet out some links there too. But you can subscribe just to us. We're also on Bumpers and SoundCloud. SoundCloud is through the Athletic Cleveland CF to search the Athletic Cleveland there. But search Selby as Godcast, or just follow the links On theathletic.com, you can find the million ways that you can subscribe to us there. So I think I've, I've cleaned out everything. Is that clear, concise? you think anybody has any questions before we go? I'll take that as a no. All right. Well, thanks for listening this week. And Zach and I will see you later.